Hello everybody, hope you had a good lunch. Um, welcome back. Um, I'm from Berkeley and I'm delighted to see uh, this collaboration between Oxford and Berkeley and the wonderful work that Alexis and Lindsay are doing today. And um, I'm very delighted to introduce uh, the panel of theatre and, perf uh, and uh, performance. Uh, and I will introduce the speakers uh, as they get ready to speak and we'll take questions at the end. So, our first speaker is uh, Katie Newey, who is a professor of theatre history at the University of Exeter and uh, the author of John Ruskin and the Victorian Theatre, uh, Women's Theatre Writing in Victorian Britain, and has written a lot more, and we're all waiting for the, uh, her work on Victorian pantomime, uh, a cultural history of English pantomime, 1837 to 901. And her title today is Self-Censorship and Getting Lost, Fanny Campbell and Constance Leerborn in the Arctic. Thank you. <laughs> um, right, I've spent um, uh, a lot of time obviously in the realms of trash culture and pantomime, but also um, before that in looking for and finding invisible women, women who wrote plays for the theatre in the 19th century. And I'm going to do a shameless um, self-promotion here. Um, there always were women writing for the theatre, but no one really looked for them. Even the playwright second only to Shakespeare in popularity in the 18th century has been forgotten mostly and I ask my students whether they've ever heard of Susanna St. and most of them haven't, and they realise how fabulous she is after I throw her plays at them. Um, looking for women's work as artists is always a choice, but it's too often a choice that's not made. To excavate forgotten, overlooked and lost women is to engage directly and, as I'm going to talk about, sometimes painfully with conditions of the past. Um, and um, I work on trying to understand those contexts for the subjects of my study, even though at times that's quite frustrating and painful. Um, to, the, the two women I'm going to talk about today offer contrasting examples of the ways in which um, women playwrights particularly have been silenced through um, archival forgetting and also through self-erasure. Um, my first subject, Fanny Campbell, was an actress, diarist, letter writer, playwright, translator, a traveller, a polemicist, a public reader of Shakespeare, a Victorian woman of letters. She was extraordinary. She lived for almost all of the 19th century, from 1809 to 1893, a vivid life, and much of it lived in public. She was born into the major theatrical family of the day. She was the daughter of Charles Kemble and Marie-Thérèse de Camp, both, play, both actors involved in the management of the Theatre Royal Covent Garden. Her mother, Marie de Camp, was also a dancer and a playwright who produced light comedic afterpieces, um, a lot of them to do with the difficulties of marriage. Uh, Fanny's sister, Adelaide, was a, success, a successful opera singer. Fanny Kemble was the niece of the two star actors of the late 18th and early 19th centuries, John Philip Kemble and Sarah Siddons. When um, Fanny's father, Charles, took over management of Covent Garden, he um, suffered the inevitable financial difficulties that, came, that seemed to come with this theatre. And it was in an attempt to save the theatre and to save her family business that Fanny Kemble made her stage debut as Juliet at the age of 19 to overnight fame, celebrity and stardom. And uh, one of the drawings there is of her in role 
as Juliet. The other is a drawing taken from the Thomas Lawrence portrait. There's a whole other story about the relationship between the, the Kemble family and, and Thomas Lawrence. Constance Beerbohm, um, and, and I've got a lot, yes, there we, and there we have Fanny as Portia, uh, Fanny Kemble in later life with her Shakespearean readings, and that is a drawing from the Folger Shakespeare Library. I'm not quite sure of its provenance, uh, but the Folger has it of Fanny Kemble in her six favourite roles. So Constance Beerbohm was the daughter, was the sister of Herbert Beerbohm Tree, the daughter of Julius Ewald Beerbohm, and half-sister of Max Beerbohm. After the death of her father, she took over her stepmother's role of running the Beerbohm household and the liaison with the Beerbohm Tree household. Uh, Beerbohm Tree was married to, so her brother was married to Maud Tree. Her half-brother, Max Beerbohm, was married to the actress Constance Kahn. Uh, these are just some of the, the many photographs of the Beerbohm family. Uh, Constance was an occasional and generally impoverished freelance journalist and occasional playwright whose work is scattered throughout various ladies' magazines of the late 19th century. Like Kemble, she was part of a family dynasty which placed her at the centre of London artistic circles. As I said, sister of the great actor-manager Herbert Beerbohm Tree, uh, sister-in-law of the actress Maud Tree, half-sister and indeed the person who got Max Beerbohm's work first before journal editors. Um, in contrast to Kemble, however, public records of Constance Beerbohm's presence in this circle are scattered in few, and I couldn't find, I haven't been able yet to find a visual image of Constance. Where she survives is in these letters in the Beerbohm Tree family collection, which is kept separately to the Beerbohm Tree theatre collection at the Bristol Theatre Collection. These letters tell another story which has been mostly overlooked by anyone, let alone feminist literary historians. The archive is messy, there's the box, there's that, that's how it presents to you, that's what it looks like. What you see there are some of the um, attached notes by various archivists and volunteers at the Bristol Theatre Collection, um, but they're not really, they're about notes about content, but they're not really about dates. Um, so that's what you're dealing with, and that's the picture that I'll just leave up there now for us to remind us. <clears throat> the teenage Fanny Kemble had become increasingly aware of the strains on the family finances of running the Covent Garden Theatre. Several times in letters to her lifelong friend, Harriet St. Ledger, Kemble expresses her energetic and ambitious desires to be of service to her family, and the roles she suggests are writer, governess, or even as a performer. Eventually, she followed her parents, her aunt, her uncle, onto the stage. She became an overnight sensation as Juliet in her father's production of Romeo and Juliet at Covent Garden in October 1829. Her debut, The Next Generation of this illustrious family dynasty, quite literally saved her father's finances. They stayed for three years. I mean, the, the theatre was just, Kemble was just about to be thrown into chancery for his debts. Um, the, the, um, the, the family stayed working with um, Fanny doing um, various of her, her, her roles for three years at Covent Garden, then in 1832 undertook a barnstorming tour of America and family, Fanny made the family fortune there as well. It was in America that Kemble married George Pierce Butler after a swift and often volatile courtship 
courtship. This marriage was her escape from the stage and a major act of rebellion against her father. In later years, Kemble presented her marriage as a rejection of her role as a star actor, Miss Kemble, and cash cow for the Kemble family. Her marriage signalled the end of the performing career which made her a star, and importantly was also a statement of her growing distaste for the exigencies of an actor's life and the demands of celebrity stardom. And her subsequent and voluble autobiographical writings frame her teenage enthusiasms for the stage, for saving her family's finance and her early frame and celebrity with a, a volkfass, an enduring anti-theatrical commentary. But Kemble's marriage didn't result in the retreat from public life as much as she had perhaps hoped. Her first autobiographical publication in 1835, the Journal of Francis Anne Butler, was published to a wide range of opinion, mostly censorious, in Britain and America. And other autobiographical writings came out of Kemble's um, life in America. A Year of Consolation in 1847, and famously, Journal of a Residence on a Georgian Plantation, which was published in 1863, which obviously is a very significant date in the United States, oh, in, well, it wasn't the United States then, was it, in America. Her public persona, um, this cause of anxiety to her, was uh, also a powerful tool in the anti-slavery movement, because of course what she writes about is about the um, horrors of slavery on the Georgian plantation. Um, and part of the reason for her divorce from George Pierce Butler was that he had misled her about the extent of his ownership of slaves. <clears throat> um, although Campbell resisted connection with other organized feminist movements of the later century, for example, she was not a suffragist, uh, she was not a supporter of women's suffrage, her outspoken words against slavery were motivated by the recognition of the parallels between the enslavement of African Americans and the position of women in her society. So this public persona that caused her so much distaste as an actor um, also became a very powerful tool in other political um, campaigns. Kemble was a prolific life writer. She produced numerous collections of life writing, records of a girlhood, records of a later life, further records, and Journal of a Residence on the Georgian Plantation. For a woman who deliberately or accidentally had become a celebrity at 19, the focus of these autobiographical writings, so they're often collections of her letters to other people framed by her commentary many decades later. Um, so records of a girlhood are her letters when she was from the age of about 14 to the age of um, uh, 22 or so, but published many years later, um, almost 50 years later in her life. To an historian though, reading these letters, reading these autobiographical works against the grain, her life writings demonstrate an unacknowledged conflict about her public life. The older writing Kemble seems to silence her younger performing self, editing and framing her teenage enthusiasms for saving her family's fortunes to create an anti-theatre self who married a brash American plantation owner to escape the stage. There are at least two versions of Kemble's career and subsequent life. One of them is promulgated by Kemble herself. She says loudly, publicly and often that she detests the stage. And yet, the actions and decisions of her life give pause for thought. The theatre and the drama are her resort for a livelihood at several points of crisis in her life, not just the crisis of her family fortunes when she was 19. 
When penniless, as a consequence of her divorce, which is a very nasty divorce, she lost her children in it. When penniless, as a consequence of her divorce from Butler, she gave hugely popular readings of Shakespeare across Britain and America. And her writing consistently demonstrates her professional knowledge of the theatre's practices, its economics, and her own value as a performer. Kemble knew her power and worth in terms not only of her value to her father, but also her status as a national figure, able to offer authoritative accounts of the national dramatist Shakespeare to audiences in Britain and America. She took control of her public persona by publication and an opportunity afforded her by her public persona, even if that persona was um, established in ways that she later came to reject. Constance Beerbohm, by huge contrast, has almost no public presence. This is her public presence. Her public voice can now be retrieved through the joys of the recently digitised archives of periodical publications. And I'm a real nerd. I discovered that Gaius Engage has now gone from the Gale News Vault to Artemis, which is an even better searching tool. It's still a painstaking task, which I have to admit I'm not confident I've done in any kind of comprehensive way. Um, but I've got a record of what I think is most of what she's written. But we have this cache of letters from Constance Beerbohm to Maud Tree, her sister-in-law, preserved not because of Constance, but because of her, her brother, her half-brother, and her sister-in-law. They're largely uncatalogued. They're rarely dated by Beerbohm or the archivists, and I, I would not want to have that job of trying to, to date them from internal evidence. There's sometimes only a page from a much longer letter has survived, and these kinds of things are quite familiar to all of us working in these kinds of archives. The impression from reading the letters is a constant stream of discussion and consultation about family and domestic matters. The burden and responsibility of Beerbohm's care and facilitation of others' domestic and working lives is prominent in these letters, even though the trees lived separately from the Beerbohm family home. We don't have more trees half of the correspondence, except for one, as far as I've found so far, one transcribed letter uh, that Maud writes to Constance after they've just been to Balmoral to do a um, Royal Command performance. But it's clear that it was a to-and-fro conversation, even when Constance takes Maud to task, emphatically and directly, it's an extraordinary letter, for her selfishness and risky behaviour in taking too many grains of a sleeping drug. It was to Maud Tree that Beerbohm could unburden herself about family matters, especially Beerbohm's difficult relationship with her stepmother. In her letters to Maud, the clash between Beerbohm's sense of duty and her vocation, and indeed necessitous, uh, her need to write uh, for, for the cash, uh, this, this conflict is often acute. And I'll just give you one example. Poor Mama. Constance writes, her returns from holidays seems to bring a sort of apprehension of things to come and a sort of unrest I can't describe, an atmosphere of care. That week with Max, and this is obviously a week where her mother was away, that week with Max was such repose, we saw no one, no callers, and sat quite still in odd attitudes on sofas, no bells and no mysterious notes, only articles written in my bad style and his good style. Or another fragment. Mama was too exhausted. It took her days to recover from going to the theatre. My sister had sent her there, thinking to relieve me of strain on my writing day. But the strain was worse afterwards. 
While reading, while reading Beerbohm's letters to Maud is like reading one half of a conversation of domestic intimacy, her letters to theatre critic William Archer at about the same time offer a very different view of Beerbohm. She is knowledgeable about theatre business and she demonstrates her access to the centre of the London profession at its highest level, almost by the by. For example, she writes to William Archer to rebut his criticism of Mrs. Patrick Campbell's vocal method, and Mrs. Patrick Campbell at the time had taken the, the theatre by storm with the second Mrs. Tanqueray. I'm sure you haven't the least idea how well she could act if only she wasn't so terribly in earnest about all sorts of methods. One day at the theatre, when I was alone with her and my brother, she did some absurd scene on the spur of the moment and quite forgot art, and Constance capitalises art there or any nonsense of that sort, and you couldn't believe how superb she was and what her humour can be. This is a casual reference to being in the theatre with the greatest, one of the greatest actor-managers, probably second only to um, Henry Irving at this time, and the sensational actress at the time. You're just in the theatre. She just did this thing, you know. And yet this is the woman that keeps writing to William Archer saying, I know nothing, please don't answer this letter, but I just have to tell you. So... <coughs> There's this anxious tone, almost desperate in her letters to, to Archer, but all the while showing her centrality, or at least her knowledge, at the centre of um, one of London's prime tourist industries by this point. It's a curious example of someone in a theatrical family and household who needs to find another correspondence, another outlet for her ideas, and a kind of hero worship for her critics. So, on the evidence of her letters, <clears throat> it would be easy to dismiss Beerbohm as a neurotic and hysteric, with all the misogynist historical freight that those words carry. But her published journalism suggests a competent professional writer. She published right regularly in widely read magazines, such as The English Woman, Tinsley's Magazine, and The English Illustrated Magazine. She wrote a journalistic mixture of travel, music, biography, and interviews of celebrity at home. She was able to compose engaging prose in profiles for magazines where the colour writing of a celebrity interview is underpinned, and you, see, you hear this all, you read this all the time in her work. Um, the celebrity bump is underpinned by solid and extensive knowledge of theatre, music, and the history of performance. She knew what she was writing about in a thoroughly professional way. So none of this is easy reading for a feminist historian. What emerges from these scraps, orts and fragments of Beerbohm's archival traces is a picture of a life lived within the constraints of celebrate, celibate femininity and a family home which was a place of anxiety rather than peace. She seems painfully caught between the discursive construction of the Victorian family and the Victorian daughter and her lived reality. The desperation, the signs of ill health, can be read as playing out of these contradictions. And there's also the burden of, male, of carrying and caring for male genius, in inverted commas, such as her brothers Max and Herbert. The striking thing about the record here is that although Beerbohm lived in an age which we assume there were ongoing revolutions in taste and lifestyle, this is the era of the naturalist revolution on stage, the new woman, the decadent challenge to Victorian lifestyles offstage. This is Nora slamming the door on Torvald. Beerbohm is still caught in this, what seems to us to be very problematic um, notion of domestic femininity. Um, that endures. So, K 
Kemble and Beerbohm were clearly not silent women, but their writing was inevitably shaped by the gendered ideologies then and historiographical frameworks now. What arises for me now, and I'll finish on this, is a series of ethical questions. While I stand, while I stand by the necessity of reading against the grain, I start wondering how far it is ethical to read Kemble's life story against the grain of her own autobiographical narrative. Her multiple volumes of autobiography consistently align with an enduring theatrical prejudice of the 19th century. And as an historian of the Victorian theatre, I think I know how much that prejudice was itself an ideological construction, and one which had very difficult consequences for female theatre professionals that I've written at great length about elsewhere. But do I make the judgment that Kemble was just muddled about her own life, a victim of false consciousness? One of the things I saw as I looked for the hundreds of women I track in my book on women playwriting, women's playwriting in the 19th century was the rarity of women speaking or writing for themselves. So what do I do when I disagree <laughs> with the thing that a woman writes very much about herself? What are the ethical consequences of writing about um, Frances Kemble against her own grain? in a culture which has consistently and misogynistically misrepresented, rewritten or spoken over women's words. Kemble and Beerbohm offer different ways of approaching one of the most interesting but challenging tasks for the historian, understanding and interpreting the negotiations of individuals with the within the constraints of the social structures within which they live. For a feminist historian, this is an investigation into the opportunities for women in patriarchy to develop autonomous and realised selves and to track the extent to which they were able to do so or not. Using a very broad range of evidence from a scattered archive starts to reveal the kinds of agency these women had and how they were able to use forms of social and cultural capital. Historiographic reflexivity is an ethical activity. How should we approach the lives and works of these women? How do feminist ethics require us to work in archives with an historical imagination open to different voices? Particularly those voices which appear to cut across the pro political project of liberation, such as beer bums, living still in this constricted notion of femininity. This is an ethical question about meeting the other of past subjectivity and understanding and making visible the political as well as the epistemological terms in which selfhood was constructed. And I'm left with really the only conclusion I can make at the moment, which is that our answers will be as contradictory and fractured as the gendered ideologies which construct and frame both the historian and her subjects. Thank you.